Welcome to episode 110 of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Below, and I am very grateful that you've chosen to spend this time with me. Whether this is your first or your 110th episode, I hope you hear something that will make you smile, spark an insight, improve your business, or maybe even change your life. This week, I'm flying solo, but it's not only my thoughts and experiences that you're going to hear. Last week, I posted an article on LinkedIn titled, Three Little Words That Will Change Your Life Forever. It went live on Thursday morning, and by lunchtime, it had garnered around 25,000 views. By dinner, we were up to 45,000. And today, a week later, it sits at more than 413,000 views, plus hundreds of comments and shares. Clearly, something about that post is resonating with people. So I share these numbers not to brag, but to provide some context as to why I've decided to dedicate this podcast to that post and share reader reactions to it. Before I get to the post itself, I want to share three things that I learned over the course of that post growing in popularity. First, it reminded me that it's difficult to predict what will catch fire and what will only simmer. As entrepreneurs who create content, and that's all of us in some fashion, we want content to go viral. We wish that there was a magic formula or that we could predict how things will do. There are certainly things we can do to increase the odds. We can have a message that relates to a timely or controversial issue, have a twist that no one else has thought of, use the right keywords, platform, and timing for maximum exposure, and for good measure, Include a picture of a cat or a dog or a baby doing something crazy cute that makes us feel all the feels. But even that's no guarantee. I can't tell you how many times I've shared something thinking that it would take off, only to see it land with barely more than a thud. And other times when I didn't have any expectations, only to see the post or image pick up speed like a runaway train. The lesson for all of us in this Focus on creating content that resonates with you and serves your core audience. Don't start with the idea that you want to create a viral post. Start with the idea that you want to create a valuable truth. Second, while putting it in writing is often the most comfortable means of expression for an introvert, that doesn't mean that it's without its vulnerabilities. While the overwhelming majority of people who read my post understood my intention and were easily able to apply the concept to their own lives, there was a small fraction that resisted, twisted, misinterpreted, or flat out disagreed with the post. I wanted to jump to my own defense, even to match sarcasm with sarcasm. But in the end, that would serve no purpose. It would be creating the wrong type of fire. I'm happy to engage with thoughtful disagreement, but when it comes to the pithy put-downs, I choose to pass. So the lesson for us all is, part of being seen by others includes the possibility of judgment and misinterpretation. We know that intellectually, but we're not always prepared emotionally. When you are in that vulnerable place, decide to express gratitude and give energy to the thoughtful responders, and let the people in the cheap seats, as Brene Brown would call them, survive on a diet of their own rotten tomatoes. And third, the experience drove home an idea I frequently share during presentations, that spending lots of time on social media can be as energetically draining for an introvert as going to a happy hour networking event. 
I spent the better part of my day last Thursday responding to comments on the article because I was genuinely interested in the conversation. I was alone all day, and I didn't have any appointments, but I was exhausted by the end. I felt as if I'd had a hundred conversations with strangers, all within a four- or five-hour time span. We introverts can fall into the trap of thinking that time spent at our computers is restorative, because we're not directly interacting with people in real time, in person, and we can do it at our own pace, and we're in control. But there comes a tipping point when a silent laptop is as noisy as a party, and it can suck the life right out of us. So this lesson is to notice how much time you're spending on social media, even if it's work-related. And if there's a turning point when it goes from energizing to draining, when you feel like it's less about connection and more about just kind of killing time. It's also useful to notice when it becomes mindless. When I start following clickbait, and come on, I know that you do it too, that's my signal to step away from the computer. A little bit is okay, but I prefer to use that first click that I might make on a look at how trashy this formerly beautiful celebrity is now type of post as a sign either to do something more productive or go take a nap as a way of rebooting my personal hard drive. So now on to the post. This is the version I published on Huffington Post, which varies slightly from the original LinkedIn piece. After reading the post, I'm going to share some highlights of comments from LinkedIn members who offered ways in which they put this concept into practice both at work and at home. True Story One rainy afternoon a few years ago, I was driving into Seattle for a networking event um, when my husband called me from his office in Tacoma. As I listened to him, I noted the barely perceptible panic in his voice. Something unexpected had come up, and he needed the one car that we shared for an off-site meeting. Since I was in the car, traveling up I-5 at 65 miles per hour in the opposite direction from him, he clearly had a problem. There was a time when I would have sighed, said, I'll be right there, and gotten off at the next exit and turned around. He had called me with a problem. I had to save the day, right? I would have felt mildly annoyed, but in a twisted way, virtuous for having come to his rescue and fixed his problem. And my strong introvert side would have felt relieved. After all, no networking event. But that's not how this story ends. I listened to him and I said, oh dear, I'm really sorry to hear that. How else could you get to the meeting? We brainstormed some solutions for a moment. He said, I'll figure it out and we hung up. And I forgot about the conversation until I got home later that evening. It was a true turning point for me. It was one of the first times I'd intentionally taken a concept I learned in coach training and put it into practice personally. And that is to see and hold others as whole, capable, and resourceful. While those three words are simple, the concept is a game changer. If I choose to hold someone as whole, capable, and resourceful, I see that person not as someone to rescue, but a person to respect. Not broken, but healthy. Not helpless, but self-reliant. Not clueless, but creative. So when I listen to my husband and don't assume I need to swoop in and make it all better, I am respecting his capacity to solve his problem. I offer support and empathy, but I don't have to abandon my own priority to take care of his. 
I trust that he can handle it, which increases his trust in himself. And I don't assume that my solution is his solution. Admittedly, this is a fairly simple example, and not a lot was at stake. Certainly wasn't life and death. But how can we take this principle and put it into practice in more complicated situations? And why is this particularly important to introverts? Being the fixer is a role many of us slip into, regardless of whether we're introverted or extroverted. Introverts who tend to lean this way might do so because they feel relief when attention shifts from them to a problem to fix. And much of being a healthy, happy introvert is about managing our energy. To do that, we need to establish boundaries around our quiet time, our workspaces, and our social interaction. And depending on our personality, we might find those boundaries frequently being violated because of our equal need to be of service or to feel like we have a clear sense of purpose in the interaction. Therefore, Whether the situation is simple or complex, it's the perfect opportunity to practice establishing a boundary of compassionate detachment, one that allows us to be present for someone without getting roped into the drama. Here's how you can do that. First, release the idea that you need to fix the person or solve the problem. Let go of the fixer identity. Be present and curious without going into rescue mode. Second, soften your presence. That includes your eyes, mouth, hands, and shoulders. Rather than brace yourself to take action, breathe, relax, and listen without judgment or analysis. Third, remind yourself that the other person is an intelligent, resourceful human being capable of handling the situation. Fourth, give her the gift of your attention, space to think, and your belief that she can figure it out. Fifth, come from curiosity. Some things you might ask include, what options do you have? When have you been in this situation before and what did you do then? What's most important to you right now? Do you want me to do some brainstorming with you? What would support you best right now? Create a space in which the other person feels supported, seen, and heard, while encouraging them to take the lead in finding a resolution. And finally, if you do decide to give advice or offer to help, do so without attachment. Let the other person decide what they need. I can hear some of you now. You're thinking, yeah, that would work with a person who has it together, but it wouldn't work for my crisis-oriented, super-needy brother, coworker, mother-in-law. And I'll grant you this, there are some people who have certain life challenges that may make it seem difficult, if not impossible, for you to see them as whole, capable, and resourceful. After all, they might not see themselves as whole, capable, and resourceful. But try anyway. Find ways to see past the surface issues and speak to their higher self, the one that longs to be respected and cherished and to be seen as capable. Discern what's going to serve the situation best. Sometimes a rescue is required, but always question that assumption. Because here's the bottom line. When we treat others with dignity and respect, they often rise to the occasion, whether they believe in their own capacity or not. Your belief in them inspires belief in themselves. This allows you to be present and compassionate without giving away your power. 
It takes time to build this muscle. Start by noticing when you jump into rescue mode and practice solving the problem with rather than for the other person. Gradually release any feeling of responsibility for their solution and instead focus on how you can create a supportive space that empowers the other person to own their solution. Carl Jung concluded, As far as we can discern, the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. You don't have to stamp out the darkness. Simply be the gentle light that shines on the brilliance of others so they can discover that brilliance for themselves. Now I want to share selected responses to that post, many of which include personal experiences of putting this type of approach into practice. For instance, Parley says, In my former life as a public school administrator, we held a similar philosophy called love and logic, formulated by the gentleman Jim Fay. The premise is that kids are one, lovable, two, capable, three, skillful, and four, creative. Adults are just big kids. Love and logic works in the private sector, too. As teachers and administrators, we intuitively want to be the problem solver and tell kids how to solve their problems. Love and logic requires the one who creates a problem or has a problem to solve his or her own problem. John shares, as a fellow outgoing introvert, I think I've been practicing the essence of this approach with my staff over the years. I view my leadership role as an inverted pyramid. I support them in their success by providing strategic direction and the inspiration to pursue it, providing the talent, training, and resources to their work teams, clearing hurdles and impediments to smooth progress, expressing confidence and trust in their abilities, and then stepping aside to give them exposure and the opportunity to grow. Scott shares this. I know I learned so much more from the leaders I have worked for who coached versus directed, who let me think through the situations for myself versus giving their answers. I also see it now as I consult with entrepreneurs who are new to different strategic ideas. They too need to own the answers versus being given them. And then Dora, who owns a restaurant, says, I found that when I let my employees solve a situation on their own, they increased their confidence level, and I received fewer panic calls. Now they report the action taken, and we discuss whether or not that was the best solution. Then we're better prepared for the next emergency. Karen shares, I have to hold back on doing things for my private clients. I have been switching to saying, it's just my opinion. It's your call. And if I'm teaching them how to do something, I do it with them once or twice before I let them fly on their own. John, who is a police officer, says, Excellent advice as a member of a peer support team for police officers. This is the golden rule. We are taught that we are not counselors, just someone who cares and is willing to listen if need be. Jaina says, I am a mom of two young adults, but I seem to always run to their rescue. It is only recently that I started doing subconsciously what you are suggesting, and you are right. It seems to work much better. And what's interesting, if you're a parent listening to this, how many people in the comments applied this to their experiences as a parent, especially with teenagers. So if you find yourself identifying with that, it might be worth it to go to the comments and see what other people had to say. 
Another comment came from Cal, where she said, When I was training as an Alexander Technique teacher, I wanted a more constructive way to relate to my student, one that wasn't about seeing how they could improve or how they were doing something wrong. My teacher, Kathy Madden, offered the idea that my intention as a teacher was to create the conditions in which the student could learn and that the student was updating their current level of perfect. Seeing the student as perfect revealed so much more information as to what was going on for them. And then Tina shared, It's hard to step back and let others do a job that you can do faster, better, whatever. However, if you always do the job, then no one else can take over and you cannot move on. For me, the hardest part is to stop before I react. Reacting is usually doing something without thought and out of habit. Taking a breath and just repeating back the issue to the other person will often provide them an opportunity to come up with a solution. Step back from being the one with all the answers. One of the hardest things for me to do was to delegate and then letting the other person fail if necessary. Working together to get back on track allows the other person to learn, feel empowered, and take ownership. Mark shares that I used to be that person that always ran to the rescue. Not a bad thing from the perspective of intent, but unfortunately, it produces bad results. It doesn't teach the other person anything to do, everything for them, but it also sends out a signal of you are not competent that may very well end up damaging the person you're trying to help. These days, I live by a simple rule when it comes to rushing to the rescue. I only lend a hand to people who are at least trying to help themselves. It also reminds me of the old saying, give a man a fish and he will eat for a day. Teach him how to fish and he will eat for a lifetime. Melissa says, I have been practicing this for a few years, and while I do slip up, I can say with confidence, each time I have followed this practice, the individual involved has grown and become more confident in themselves. And boy, have I used this on some people I thought would never make it. I truly believe if you give someone the tools to make decisions for themselves and allow them to see the benefits they can reap, it's a game changer. While it might not work out for them right away, if they continue trying, they do eventually make it be it here or someone else. And growth is what matters. And finally, I will share something from Dermot. He says, when that attitude embeds itself within a team, it is then that the leaps in performance start to show up. If a few people do it, it opens up trust and confidence in a team. I've met a lot of managers over the years who quote, don't have the time to coach in the way that you mention." The funny, or sad, thing is that the person keeps coming back with more issues. The manager ultimately spends more time fixing things than they would have spent coaching and empowering the person on the very first issue. As you can tell by these comments, so much of it comes down to intention and discernment about what's going to serve the person and the situation best in the moment. There were definitely comments from people who didn't agree with this philosophy, equating it to abandoning someone in their hour of need. They interpreted it as saying to someone who needs help, well, too bad for you, good luck with that, or sorry, I can't help you, I have more important things to do, or figure it out yourself. I feel a bit sad, actually really sad, that they read it that way. Because what's clear to me is that there's a difference between a healthy response of being supportive without the need to rescue and an unhealthy response of withholding help or not showing compassion. You must discern what's needed in the moment 
and sometimes a rescue is called for, and act on that need clear on your motivation. The next time someone asks you for help and you have a choice about what to do, notice where your motivation is coming from and if it sounds like any of the following. Is it to come to their rescue? To feed your ego? To assert your authority? To put the other person in the position of needing to repay you? Do you feel fear that the other person won't love you if you don't drop everything and help? Or that they will think you don't love them if you don't drop everything? Is it simply a habit and you do it without thinking? Are you afraid the other person will fail or experience emotional pain? Do you want to spare them from something? Do you only feel useful if you're in problem solving or crisis mode? If any of those statements ring true, it might be an invitation to step back and reflect on whatever part of you has an identity as the fixer. And notice if you take pride in that role, it can be seductive to be the hero who always saves the day. If you're the type of person who says, this place would fall apart without me, that's an indicator that you might be playing the hero role in an unhealthy way that's focused on rescuing others rather than being a collaborator and a leader. There is so much to say on this topic and many different angles to explore, but I'm going to stop here and point you towards some resources listed in the episode show notes. And I encourage you to visit the LinkedIn post, which you can also access through the show notes and read through the comments. You'll see a wide range of responses from hundreds of people in different professions, many of whom say that they're introverts, who apply this philosophy in their work and at home. In addition to those resources, I'm going to include links to a few other items of interest, including an interview that I did with Joanna Penn of the wildly popular The Creative Penn podcast, and an article on the connection between solitude and creativity that I think you're going to find interesting. I'd like to bring this to a close with a quote. This one comes from that famous person, Unknown, who said, Leaders instill in their people a hope for success and a belief in themselves. Positive leaders empower people to accomplish their goals. Thank you so much for joining me for this special episode dedicated to how we can empower and support others while managing our own boundaries and our introvert energy. If you want to learn more about me, my book, or the services I offer through The Introvert Entrepreneur, please visit my website at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. And if you love this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and sharing it with others. I'd also be thrilled if you decided to pick up a copy of my new book, The Introvert Entrepreneur, Amplify Your Strengths and Create Success on Your Own Terms. It's available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and wherever fine books are sold. Many thanks to Paul Messing, my ever-faithful and patient podcast producer, and to you for spending this time with me. This is Beth Bilo of The Introvert Entrepreneur, and until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. Thank you.